time to get started. Thank you for being here on this lovely spring day. Snowy day. What a great April it is. The sun's shining, the birds are chirping, it's warm. T-shirt weather. No, those that are following along on the podcast don't realize that it snowed today in Charlotte on April 2nd. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, people woke up and it was snowing. So, But we're here, we're warm, we had a good hot meal. And as always, um, if you want to show your appreciation for the meal, you can put tips in this bucket right here. That goes straight to the kitchen staff and thanking them for their hard work in preparing our food. It doesn't go to me. I don't see a penny of this. Nope. It goes straight to them. So you can rest easy. You're not supporting a ginger. Uh, we are in Joshua chapter 10. Now we're going to be in Joshua chapter 10 this week and next week because Joshua chapter 10 is an interesting chapter. And Joshua chapter 10 is a chapter that has been written on, preached on, and widely misunderstood in a lot of ways. And so we're going to set the background and then we're going to go a little deeper into the actual language of the passage because it's super important in order to understand what's happening and in order to have a view of scripture that is not open to unnecessary critique or ridicule. And so that's always important. Um, One of the things I've found among Christians and skeptics alike that's disturbing as a Bible teacher is they take the most literal reading of a Bible passage and then either try to defend it or debunk it. We see this all the time. Read the Bible as literally as you can read it, as woodenly as you can read it. Take no account of things like genre figures of speech, Hebrew language norms, none of that. And then try to either go do backflips in order to defend it, that reading of the Bible, or just debunk it and dismiss it as evidence for why you can't trust the Bible. People do this all the time. And it is one of the frustrating things, but it's one of the reasons that we do this Bible study the way we do this Bible study, is we go deep into the fact that Scripture is not written in English, certainly not in King James English, and it is not written as a wooden, literal, scientific account of things the way we or modern newspaper readers would write it. It is written according to ancient Near East norms in the language that made sense in the ancient Near East of the second millennium BC. It uses literary motifs, it uses non-literal language, it uses poetry, it uses metaphor, it uses symbolism, it even quotes from other non-biblical sources at times when God wants to make his point to his people using other sources. And that's nothing new. Paul does it in the New Testament. Um, so elsewhere, the biblical writers do it. The book of Revelation does it. But that doesn't always get noticed in cursory readings or devotional readings or simple Bible studies where, um, where the focus is all about application. Get to the application, get to the application. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? And hopefully throughout this study, if you've been coming for the past, I don't know, six years since we've been doing this together, you realize that the question, what does this mean to me, is the last question you should ask about the Bible. Doesn't mean you shouldn't ask it, just ask it at the end. Ask it after you've asked the more important questions, which are, what does this text say? 
What does this text mean in its setting? How did the original readers hear this text? And then you can ask the question, so in light of all that, what does this mean to me? That's how Bible study should go. Unfortunately, we turn it on its head a lot of times. So Joshua chapter 10 follows, surprisingly, on Joshua chapter 9. Big shocker. In Joshua chapter 9, which was last week, and you can check the podcast or the video, which is why we record, we read about these group of Hivites, people who saved themselves from being driven out of the land and being exterminated by this proto-faith in God. And I say proto-faith because it wasn't quite faith in God, but it was fear of God. It was recognition of Yahweh, and it was a desire to not be His enemy. And that's a starting point. Because that's the, that differs, that differentiates the Canaanites like Rahab and the Gibeonites from all the other Canaanite peoples that God sent Israel in to drive out. We're going to see that response this week. So the Gibeonites, they, through deception, through craftiness, through deceit, they made a binding suzerainty vassal treaty with Israel. They made a treaty that cannot be broken. And suzerain vassal treaties were treaties of protection. As you remember from our study of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that God was pledging to be Israel's suzerain, they were his vassal, that meant he would protect them if they honored their end of the bargain. Well, the Gibeonites entered into one of those treaties with Israel, and now Israel is forced to be the suzerain. And that means that when your vassal is in trouble, you defend the vassal. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins, Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. That means a city that had its own king leader. Remember, this is the time of city-states, not nations. So Gibeon was not just some little podunk town. Okay, Gibeon was a center of power. It was larger than I, and all its men were good fighters, mighty warriors. This sheds more light on what happened last chapter because it was this mighty city, this influential city of strong fighting men that pretended to be weak, meek travelers in order to make peace with Israel. This shows the irony of what happened in the last chapter. And it shows God exalting Israel over the nations, these powerful Canaanite nations that, that the spies of the original generation said there's no way we can drive them out. If Israel is obedient to God, even these powerful nations will come and bow down to Israel and agree to serve them as their vassal. And that's what the Gibeonites do. And we find out that Gibeonites aren't this poor little group of nobodies. This is a powerful city-state within the central region of Canaan. It's a big deal that the Gibeonites have allied themselves with this, from the Canaanite perspective, invasion of Israelites. And so, King Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Yarmuth, Yaphia, king of Lachish, and Deborah, king of Eglon. So these five kings says, Come up, help me attack Gibeon, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. You would think that these kings might say, Hey, if Gibeon, mighty Gibeon, is willing to make peace with these 
invaders, maybe we should do the same. Who knows, maybe we too can be spared. No, that wasn't their response. Their response was like that of Pharaoh, seeing the work of God in your midst and hardening yourself and um, opposing it even more dramatically. So King Agnizetic, which ironically that means my Lord is righteousness and he's anything but, uh, calls together these other four kings of these surrounding city-states. He says, hey, these Gibeonites, they've made peace with the enemy. We need to attack them and destroy them. The Gibeonites, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 5, then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. Five kings. They moved up with all their troops and they took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your vassals, your servants. Come up quickly. Save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So now the Gibeonites are invoking the treaty that was made in the previous chapter and saying, come up and deliver us. We agreed to be your servants. We agreed to be your woodcutters and your water carriers. If you just let us live and not wipe us out, we agreed to serve you. But now we're under attack. And you have an obligation as our suzerain, as our king, loosely translated, suzerain, you have an obligation to protect us. And they're right. Joshua does have that obligation. Verse 7, So Joshua marched up from Gilgal, his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Now, this is where the account gets interesting. Because what happens is, in the next few verses, in verses 9 through 11, it describes the battle and what happens. Then, in verses 12 through 14, it gives a poetic description of the same events, the same time frame. We saw this back in Exodus. You had the Exodus account, chapters 13, 14, and then in chapter 15, you have a poetic rephrasing of that account using poetic imagery, the Song of Moses. You see it in the book of Deborah. You see it when, um, in fact, I'll give you an example. Um, turn to Judges chapter 5, like the next book over. Judges chapter 5. <clears throat> There's a battle. This is during the time of Deborah, Israel's female leader female judge, female, uh, not queen, but warrior princess, the original Xena warrior princess, Deborah. And um, Deborah, they win a battle, and they overcome overwhelming odds. And then Deborah, yeah, then Deborah and uh, Barak's make a song in the next chapter, poetic account of the same thing. And it goes on and on about the kings and about the battles and everything. And then there's this really interesting passage. So a battle has happened in the earthly realm. God has caused Israel to win. Deborah's recounting it in poetry. And then in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Judges. I know we're out of Joshua right now. But this is why you bring your Bible with you. <clears throat> verse 19 says, Kings came, they fought. 
the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they carried off no silver, no plunder. In other words, these kings came and did battle. They didn't win. Verse 20, From the heavens the stars fought, and from their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping to his mighty deeds. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse his people bitterly, because they did not come to the help uh, to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. There's this recounting of this passage. And just in it, there's this line. It's the defeat of Sisera. And he's an earthly king. And this line, from the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. So in the poetic recap of the battle, Deborah and Barak speak of the stars fighting against Sisera. Now the stars didn't do any fighting at all. This is a poetic description of cosmic powers of God's. It was like basically the whole universe was against Sisera and Israel was going to win this battle because God is the God of the universe. So it's poetic use of astronomical imagery to describe what on an earthly perspective is a battle that Israel won. There's another example. I'm showing you these before we read the Joshua account so that you'll at least understand how biblical Hebrew works and then can evaluate Joshua 10 on its own terms. Flip all the way to the Minor Prophets to the book of Habakkuk. You know that book you're so familiar with because you read all the time that every church just preaches whole sermon series on Habakkuk. I'm being super sarcastic, by the way. Nobody preaches on Habakkuk. Um, in Habakkuk, again, the end of the book, so God's described this coming disaster, this coming battle, this coming judgment on, on Israel this time. And God's described it. The whole message of Habakkuk is God saying, I'm going to send Israel's enemies against Israel and they're going to destroy Israel. And it's a good thing because Israel broke my covenant. And Habakkuk's whole response is, how in the world is that just? How is that going to happen? And how does that fit with your overall plan to bless us as your people? And Habakkuk does not get an answer. The book ends with him saying, I don't know how this is going to pan out, but I'm just going to trust in you, God. Well, at the end of the chapter, or the end of the book, the last chapter, Habakkuk writes a poem, a poetic description of what is going to happen, these earthly battles that are going to destroy Israel, or at least severely cripple them. And there's this interesting line. <clears throat> he's talking about when these armies come against Israel, and he's likening it as God attacking Israel, or God attacking Israel's enemies if he turns against the nations, against his enemies. So, it's like he's, this whole section is about God as a divine warrior. And it says in verse 9 of Habakkuk chapter 3, you he's talking to God, you uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. This is all of this creation responding to God in this poetic world image that Habakkuk is writing. Then, look at verse 11. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, 
and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With your own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Now this is the image that Habakkuk uses to describe God's victory over the nations that are aligning to attack Jerusalem. My point in reading this is the imagery that's used is cosmic imagery. And it's used poetically. And it has things like God trampling the waters with his horses. How many times do you hear apologists trying to prove that NASA has shown that God has horses out in outer space? Right? It doesn't happen. We don't try to defend the fact that God drove us his spear, one, that God has a spear, and two, that he drove it through somebody's head in a cosmic battle. No, we recognize that this is poetic, non-literal imagery. Because it's poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. Now, but we also recognize that it's describing poetically battles that will take place or have taken place. And that's a question for another time. This is a future thing, or is this a past thing? Doesn't matter. The point is, it's a thing that happens on earth. Whether it's delivering Israel from Egypt, which is described as God crushing the skull of Leviathan, that's how the Exodus is described in the prophets using poetic imagery. Or whether it's battles against the nations where it's described as God trampling them with his horses. Where the stars are doing war against his enemies. Where the sun and the moon stand still. This is the point. You see the point that I'm making. This is how Hebrew poetry works. Okay, so all of that is a roundabout way back to Joshua chapter 10. Because in Joshua chapter 10, when Joshua comes to deliver the Gibeonites, he goes to battle against the five kings that have overwhelmingly surrounded Gibeon. And there's an earthly battle. And then after that earthly battle, there's a poetic account. Now, if you're reading the New American Standard, the King James or the New King James, they may not put it in poetic font on the page. Typically they don't do that. They just make every verse its own paragraph. So every new verse starts a new line. That's unfortunate. It's one of the reasons I don't prefer those translations, because they obscure the literature of the text itself. If you have an NIV, it's going to show some of the poetry. But even within that, there's some question about where does the poem end? So this past two weeks I've spent reading this in both Hebrew and in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. Because there's a little bit of difference between how the Greek translation translated this and how the Hebrew text presents it. And then looking at the different English translations. Typically I teach from the NIV because it's what most people read. In the case of Joshua 10, the NIV makes some decisions that are valid decisions, but there are other ways to translate. And so instead of reading just the NIV, I'm going to read a translation that I put together that's more literal, that will at least preserve the ambiguity in some of these passages so you can see the range that the text offers. So what the text says in verse 8, this is kind of a wooden JM literal translation. There's no such thing as a literal translation, but it's pretty, it's not flowing English, which is what 
typical Bible translators go for. But based on the Greek text in the Hebrew, verse 8 reads something like, And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear from them, for into your hand I give them. Not a man from them will stand in your face. Verse 9, So Joshua went to them surprisingly or suddenly. That word can be translated suddenly or surprisingly. Either way, it doesn't matter. Jo they sent word, hey Joshua, come fight for us. Expect, expecting maybe in a day or a few days and they have to endure some siege and some fighting. The text says no, Joshua went suddenly. All night march. In fact, the next section. All night he went up from Gilgal. Verse 10. And Yahweh panicked them from the face of Israel and struck them with a great striking, like really hit them hard, in Gibeon. And he pursued them by the road going up to Beth Horon, and he struck them as far as Azekah, as far as Makeda. So the whole stretch of this battle is Israel chasing these kings from about 30 miles in total is what the army has to march from, from Gilgal to Makeda, give or take. 30 miles of chasing and fighting. But the text says God is the one doing the striking. Now Israel is striking them. Israel is chasing them with a sword and fighting, but the text is saying God is the one striking them with a great striking. And that's, that's the literal of the Hebrew. In English or different translations say it more eloquently. Because it's just bad English. But that's what the Hebrew text says. Verse 11. It was in their fleeing from the face of Israel, in their going down to Beth Horon, Yahweh threw upon them great stones from the heavens all the way to Azekah. And many who died, died by the stones of hail, more than the sons of Israel killed by the sword. So this is the account of the battle. Is there was a battle and Israel routed the enemy, attacked them as the enemy was retreating, a massive hailstorm came and hailstones were falling on the retreating five king coalition as Israel's chasing them. So the kings are getting pelted and killed with these massive hailstones. And when it hails, hail doesn't happen on a sunny day, right? Hail happens when it's dark and stormy and dark clouds. And hailstorm, hailstones of that size require really dark and really stormy thunderstorm, almost tornado-like conditions if you've ever been through a hailstorm, big hailstones. Well, this is like one of those to the nth degree. So then, verse 12, that's the account of the battle. That's how it was won. The battle was won. Now there's a poem that's going to celebrate the battle. Just like in Exodus, just like in Deborah, just like in Habakkuk. At that time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh on the day of Yahweh's giving the Amorites before the face of the sons of Israel. So this is what the text said. At that time, Joshua spoke or said to Yahweh or spoke to him. And he said, in front of the eyes of all Israel, now the question of interpretation here is who's the he and he said. Did Joshua say this or did God say this? That's the question that divides interpreters. Pick the commentaries up and you'll see some that say one, some that say the other. The way the NIV has it worded, it says Joshua spoke. And it's as if he's going to say this poem. But the Hebrew text is not that clear. It's ambiguous. So it could be Joshua spoke to the Lord, like asked God or said something to God. And in response, God then is going to speak to his creation and command the elements of his creation. That's one interpretation. 
The other interpretation is Joshua said to these elements of creation in this poem, and then they respond. So those are the two ways of reading this. Take your choice. It's up to you. But whoever said it said this before all of Israel, and now we have a poem. And this is literally in poetic form. Son in Gibeon, stop or be quiet. That's what the word damam means. It means stop or be quiet. Some traditional translations say stand still. It can mean stand still, but in the sense of stop. Don't move. Or be quiet. Cease. Shh, hush. Would be a way of translating. Either word it can have that meaning. So sun do that in Gibeon. Moon in the valley of Ayalon. And stop was quiet, whichever verse you choose, either stopped or it was quiet, the sun, and stood the moon. This is the poem. It's poetry, so it's not like smooth English. So sun in Gibeon stop and moon in the valley of Ion. And so, so stopped the sun and the moon stood until the nation avenged his enemies. Or the Greek translation says, until God warded off their enemies. And then it says... Is this not written upon the scroll of the upright? And that's what the book of Jashar literally means, scroll of the upright. And then another poem. And the sun stood still in the middle of the heavens, and it was not in haste to go, like a complete day. And that's it. That's the end of the poem. In verse 14. There was not a day like that to this day or that after, where Yahweh obeyed the voice of a man for Yahweh to come to blows literally it says come to blows the Septuagint says fought alongside Israel so this is the mysterious sun stand still passage that people have preached on and taught on and we're going to pick it up next week we're going to talk a little bit and then we'll pick it up next week the rest of the chapter but here's what's happening <clears throat> there's different ways interpreters have looked First of all, if you get a chain email that says, um, let me make sure I want to reference the right names, that Professor Charles Pickering of Harvard Observatory or Professor Totten of Yale have calculated through NASA observations that there's a missing day and it's traced back to the... That's 100% garbage. That's urban legend that's not true at all. There's zero verification for that. This happens all the time with Christian chain emails. We get it, it sounds cool, it seems to back up the Bible, so we forward it to all of our friends. Problem is, it's not true. It's urban legend. Same thing about Chinese or Hindu or Egyptian astrologers having determined that there's a missing day somewhere. Not true. Those, that, those are urban legends. You cannot trace those back to any reputable source of it actually happening. So just be aware of that, because we Christians who hold the Bible in high esteem, don't always fact check. <laughs> As a nation, we don't always fact check. But um, particularly when it comes to something we want to believe, which is like science proves the Bible. What's going on with Joshua's long day? Well, there's a few responses to this. The traditional view says Joshua said, hey, sun, stand still. Moon, stop. And so the sun and the moon stood still and stopped. Now, the sun, for the sun to be in Gibeon, or over Gibeon, and the moon in the valley of Ayalon, those are on opposite sides of the spectrum, of the axis. That would have to be in the early morning, twilight, when both are starting to be visible. The sun is rising, the moon's still visible. 
This is one of the knocks against the traditional interpretation. Because the traditional interpretation says Joshua, the Israel was losing the battle, or was, I mean, Israel was winning the battle, but they just needed some more daylight. So God, Joshua prayed, just give us some more daylight, sun stop moving, let us finish the battle. The problem was that according to the text and the position of these two bodies, this is early in the morning. So that prayer doesn't really make much sense for Joshua to pray, hey, give us more daylight to win this battle. The battle hadn't even started when the prayer was being prayed. Other suggestion of this says, no, the verb should not be translated as sun stand still. It should be translated as sun cease, as in go away, as in this hailstorm that we need is what we need. So sun, you stay hidden. Moon, you stay where you are. We need this hailstorm to happen so our enemies can be crushed with these hailstorms. And so other scholars like Walt Kaiser and others will say this, you should broadly talk, not talk about Joshua's long day, but Joshua's long night where the sun actually disappeared, ceased, and the hailstorm was allowed to exercise its full lethality in Joshua, and that's how they won the army. Or that's how they won the battle. Um, and then other translations say, no, this is like with Deborah and Sisera's account, or like with Habakkuk, this is a poetic description. Sun stands still. Moon don't move. Those are stock Hebrew poetic phrases for, hey guys, this battle is of cosmic significance. So it's kind of like when we talk about an event happening that was an earth-shattering event. That's a phrase in English, earth-shattering. Well, it doesn't literally mean the earth shattered. It means the event was really important. So something that's so important that the sun is spoken of as standing still and the moon standing still would be a really important event. And that's what other interpreters say. So we shouldn't try to, it doesn't even have anything to do with what the sun and the moon were actually doing any more than when God parted the waters of the Red Sea, He actually split the head of some sea serpent, which is how Isaiah describes the parting of the Red Sea, poetically. So those are basically the three ways. There's one more way that's been put forward. If you have the NIV cultural background study Bible, they make a good argument that when Joshua said, sun stands still, what he really meant, the way the translations work, were, hey, sun appear this way, here. Moon appear there. Because those appearing in those spots on that day would be read as a terrible omen among the Canaanites. And he gives the astronomical reasons why. And that would then make the Canaanites even more fearful of this Israelite Gibeonite coalition. And so this is actually Joshua invoking, asking God, hey, send them a terrifying omen. And that's the thing that caused them to panic, as the text said. God sent a great panic omen. So, that, that, so this is like a, a, it's called a celestial curse omen. What does all this matter? Well, one of the reasons we spend all this time on this one little account, this one is the most famous passage in Joshua, or one of the most famous passages. Two, Christians have gone out of their way to try to defend the fact that the sun actually stopped and the moon stopped. And skeptics have latched on that and said, that's ridiculous because the sun and the moon don't move. The earth moves. So for that to happen, the earth would have to stop, which means everything on the earth that's spinning at X number of miles an hour would be flung to the west or to the east or whatever. It would be catastrophe. And then the response by Christians to that is, yeah, but God's God. He can do what He wants. He can stop all that other stuff too, which is true. The problem is none of that's said in the text. You have to invent miracles 
in order to compensate for the miracle that you're reading the text as teaching a miracle. According to the text, the miracle was that the Lord obeyed the command of Joshua. At Joshua's instigation, God did something miraculous. And that's what the text says. There hasn't been a day before or since like that, at least by the time this has been written, where God obeyed the voice of a man. Where, where a man took the initiative and said, hey God, could you do this? And God did that in order to give Israel the victory. That's what made this an earth-shattering event. That's what made this a cosmic event, a monumental event. So, can you believe that the earth, that, that the traditional interpretation that God stopped the sun and the moon and that the earth stopped spinning and God took care of all the physics so that everything worked and God did? Can you absolutely you can believe that? You are totally free to believe that if that's your interpretation, if you've read a book about sun stands still and you want to claim that miracle as your own or whatever, whatever, great. Go for you. Yes, the text allows for that interpretation. But does the text demand that? No, it does not. Is it plausible that the text is teaching that? I personally don't think it is in the Hebrew or in the Greek. I think that what's going on, and when you, if you scan the commentaries, and I mean the Joshua commentaries, and you, and I've, I've, I work with about a dozen of them to prepare each week, so about a dozen or so different Joshua scholars who I'll read and see what they say. All of them have come to one agreement. They've said this section about sun stands still, moon stands still, um, and, and so there hasn't been a day like it. That section is poetry, so they all agree on. It's poetry, and it even quotes from this extra-biblical book called The Scroll of the Upright, the book of Yashua. So they agree on that. second thing they all agree on is what actually happened is not spoken of clearly in terms of the sun and moon enough for us to form a definite conclusion. What is spoken of clearly enough is that a hailstorm destroyed the armies that Israel was pursuing and chasing. That's what's clear in the battle. And that that was Joshua crying out to God and obeying and keeping His word of the covenant that they made. Even though the covenant was made under false pretenses, Joshua and Israel still remain true to their word. Those are the only things that are clear. Beyond that, there's a lot of ambiguity in this text. So, when you talk to somebody and they're like, yeah, all this stuff in the Bible, blah, blah, you know, sun stands still, well, that's not even possible. You know, talk to an astronomer or something and they start to ridicule it. Just say, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. What if you're not reading it right? What if the literal straw man you're trying to knock down is not what the text actually teaches? What if it was, here's the surprise, what if it's Hebrew poetry? Then you have to bring a whole new lens of interpretation to it. You go to Habakkuk, you go to Joshua or Judges 5, you see how it works, and then you realize, oh, I don't have to defend a miracle that's not even in the Bible. I can defend the miracle that is in the Bible, which is God intervening with the hailstorm and routing of the enemies and you know all of this stuff. So you can defend the thing that needs defending rather than defending the thing that doesn't. It's kind of like having to defend a 6,000-year-old universe and that kind of stuff. You can defend what the Bible actually teaches rather than a wooden literal interpretation that has just traditionally been carried along over the ages. But whatever happened on that day, the text makes clear it was God doing it, and it was God doing it in order for Israel to have victory over these Canaanite kings who had attacked 
people that Israel had sworn they would protect. And that's what's going on. At the beginning of Israel's conquest of the Holy Land. We're out of time. Next week we're going to pick up. Israel's going to go on and there's going to be the southern campaign where they're going to continue this. Then the northern campaign. Then we're going to get into the part of Joshua where the land gets divvied up. But we are two minutes over, so have a great week, and we'll see you next time.